discussing um, the Avoda, which is the reenactment of the service of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, which is one of the highlights of the Yom Kippur service. Um, and we'll be taking a close look at this really important part of the service and how it reflects the correct themes of the day. Um, as usual, um, I'm going to send out invitations to be a panelist. That doesn't mean that you have to talk. It just means that you'll be able to turn on your camera, which we'd love for you to do. Um, and if you have a question, you'll be able to raise your hand um, and speak. You're also welcome to put those questions in the chat and I'll pass along for you. Um, as usual, please try to keep yourself muted when you're not speaking um, and enjoy. Um, okay, can we begin? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we're um, in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Ben Keser Asar, as the Paitanim say. And um, so I did want to this morning uh, discuss some of the Yom Kippur service, um, in particular the, uh, the uh, Avoda. So the Avoda, as Chaya said, is the description of the service uh, that took place on Yom Kippur, the entire service. The key pieces of the service are performed by the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. And um, just before we get to that, just to just to frame this, Yom Kippur essentially has three main pieces to the service. There's a lot of things that we say on Yom Kippur, a lot of words, um, all kinds of interesting features. Even before we start Yom Kippur, we have Kol Nidre, which is a different dis discussion. But in terms of the service of Yom Kippur itself, there are three primary components to, to Yom Kippur, essential components. One of them is the, uh, or the recitation of the, of the Slichot. That's the uh, poems. And after the poems, we recite the so-called Yud Gimel Midot, Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. That is one essential piece of the service. The second essential piece of the service is the, are the confessions. And there are uh, typically throughout the day, and even before Yom Kippur, we have a short, we have a confession. We have the Alchet and the Yashamnu. The Alchet is the longer confession. The Yashamnu is the short confession. And that's through all of Yom Kippur. And we get to the last prayer of Yom Kippur, Ne'ila, there's no long confession. There's no, no achet. Instead of that, there's a different confession, a very beautiful one, Atahiv Dalta, Inosh Meirosh. That is the confession of Yom Atanotein Yadla Poshim is actually how it starts. Two, two paragraphs. God is, uh, hand is outstretched to the sinners. That's the confession of, the main confession of the Ewa. Actually, the main prayer of the Ewa is that, is that prayer, Atanotein Yadla Poshim. So that's the second thing. So we have the Slichot. We have the confessions, and then we have number three, the uh, avoda. The avoda is the reenactment of what took place in the temple, the Mishkan, the Mikdash, on Yom Kippur, as described in the Chumash, which is Vayikra chapter 16, but more importantly, as described in the Mishnah. The first seven chapters of Masechet Yoma, is refers to Yom Kippur, has eight chapters, the first seven of which deal with the temple service. Only the last chapter of Yom, chapter eight, talks about the Yom Kippur that we are familiar with, the abstentions, the Nuyim, Shuva. That's all in the last chapter of Yom. But the first seven chapters are a description of what took place inside the temple 
uh, on Yom Kippur. So that's called the Avoda. Avoda means the service, the sacrificial service. And before we begin, I want to say something about the Avoda from a historical standpoint. First of all, the Avoda, first of all, there are many different uh, descriptions of the Avoda that we have over time. Uh, El Bogan, who wrote a book about Jewish prayer, uh, he wrote articles about Jewish prayer. He, he collected, believe it or not, 30, that's three zero, 30 different versions of, of, the, of the Avoda were written by all the superstars that we have, Ibn Gabiro, you name it, Yudah Levi, Ibn Gabiro, Ibn Ezra, down the line, you know, medievals, pre-medievals, there were 30 different versions of the Avoda. The first point to note is that the Avoda, or mention of the Avoda, believe it or not, is found inside the Gemara. It's the Gemara in Masechet Yuma, 36b, Lamed Vav Bet, I'll, I'll come back to that later. Someone came before Rabbah. Remember, in those days, there were no Sidurim, no Machzorim. So it's all by heart. And Rabbah was unhappy with the formulation of this particular. He, he criticized the Chazan, and the Chazan defends himself. I'll get to that later, what the Chazan said and what Rabbah said, because it's irrelevant to the Avodah that, that, that we say. But my point is the Avodah is, you're talking about the Gemara, Kamei de Rabbah, so it's not clear. Is it a way it's, it's written maybe fifth century, sixth century, but the what's being described is fourth century. So it's, it's already assumed that there's an avoda in the fourth century. So therefore, I think we can we know for a fact that the avoda is very very old. Now, in terms of the avoda that is today that is typically recited by most communities, the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim, as we call them, Edot Mizrach. So the Ashkenazim, and the poem that we say begins with the words Amitz Koach. It's a difficult language. It's in my view, one of the most beautiful poems we have in, in the entire liturgy. It's an incredible work of art. That's called Amitz Koach, and that's the Ashkenazic version of the Avoda. The Sephardic version of the Avoda, which is written in a much simpler Hebrew, begins with the words Atokonanta. God, you formed, you fashioned the world. And we should not be confused. Atta uh, Konanta is the earliest avoda that we have. We don't have it, I think it's an entirety. Maybe we have most of it. But they, that's, there are two Atta Konantas. There's one Atta Konanta that's truly ancient. And that's the one that's not said today. And then there's the Atta Konanta that is printed in the in the Machzorim of the Edot Mizrach, and that's the one that the Edot Mizrach say. Now, it's, it's interesting that even some Ashkenazic communities also say Atta Konanta. Rabbi Soloveitchik said Atta Konanta. And I think the reason may be that it's much easier to understand. It's very simple, actually, relatively simple. So it's much very straightforward and simple, easy to understand. So we favor the Atta Konanta of the Edot Mizrach. But most Ashkenazim uh, say the poem Amitz Koach. Very beautiful, stunning poem, uh, Amit's Koach. It's a medieval composition. Okay, so the Avoda is ancient. That means it's actually an integral part of the service. It's absolutely an integral part of the service. And that's what I wanted to focus on uh, this morning. Now, the other, uh, the other point I want to make about Atta Konanta 
about the avoda in general, the description of the avoda is to look how it fits in within, within the mafsa. The avoda is recited only in Musaf. Let's start with that. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because the Musaf of Yom Kippur, Musaf of Yom Kippur has three, every Amida has three blessings in the beginning and three at the end. In the middle, with the exception of Rosh Hashanah, there's one blessing. Just one blessing in Yom Kippur in Musaf. But sometimes it takes the Chazan about three hours to say the one blessing, because there's a lot there. There's the Piyutim, the Sanatokia, if you name it. Then you have the regular Musaf, talks about the sacrifices that were brought. And then you have in Yom Kippur, the Avoda. Following the Avoda, Slichot. I'll get to the Slichot, and then the Confessions. That's the structure of it. So the Avoda, we find the Avoda in the Mahzer after we describe the sacrifices of the day, typical Musaf. The Avoda is sacrifices. That's what the Kohen is doing. He brings sacrifices. He makes statements about the sacrifices. He confesses within the sacrifices, etc. Was then the sacrificial description. So the Avoda is found immediately after we describe the sacrifices that are brought on Yom Kippur. Then, the, then we say, Then the Chazan has permission to pray. Those who request to pray. And then we launch into what is the core of Yom Kippur, the core prayer of Yom Kippur, Avoda, Slichot, and Vidri. That's the Musaf. Now, so that's the way, that's how it, that's how it is. Uh, that's how we see it. That's how we engage with it within the Musaf service. The, um, what's interesting is the following. Let me just say one more point in, by way of introduction to the Avoda. Um, on Yom Kippur, we say Slichot. Now, the core of Slichot is the repetition of these attributes of mercy, Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Um And of course, when you look at any old Machzorim, the Gaonim, or you even see what the, what the German Jews, what the Yekis do, you see immediately that Slichot ought to be recited in all five prayers of, uh, of, uh, of Yom Kippur. Hashem Hashem Kerachem B'chanim should be found in all five prayers of Yom Kippur. Remarkably, and it's a question how this happened, we don't, we, I mean, not we, not me, but most uh, traditional synagogues, or we have Hashem Hashem Kerachem B'chanim Kol Nidre night after Myriv, and they have it also in uh, in uh, in uh, Neila. In the other three prayers, Shacharit, Mincha, and, and Musaf and Mincha. So if you open up a standard like a Birnbaum, for example, I haven't seen the art school master, but typically uh, most of them won't have the Slichot at all. They'll have pieces of the Slichot. For example, Shema Koleinu. Shema Koleinu was the end of Slichot. After we say Slichot. At the end of the Slichot, we ask God to listen to, to, to hear our prayers, to accept our prayers, as we do in the regular Amidah every day. After we make all our requests, we say Shema Koleinu. Shema Koleinu was just the end of the, end of, of the, of the Slichot service. Zechor Rachamecha, which leads up to it. That's just the end of Slichot. So what the printers did was they chopped out the Slichot, but they left in, for whatever reason, the end of the Slichot. 
I know it makes no sense, but that's what they did. And they did that in Shacharit, and they did it in Mincha and Musaf. But what's interesting is that Musaf is different than the other two, because typically the Slichot were to be recited in Shacharit and Mincha, they recited, for those who say Slichot, even those who say abbreviated Slichot, they recited after Yalav Yavu. After Yalav Yavu, then there was Slichot. Because the last line of Yalav Yavu, remember Yalav Yavu, Kikel Melech Hanun Varachum Ata. That's how Yalav Yavu ends. You are a Hanun Varachum. Yalav Yavu, just parenthetically, is a is the standard prayer recited on, on every festival. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Shvini Yatzeret. We always say Yalav Yavu. And it ends with Rachum Vachanun because the theme, and Rosh Chodesh, because the theme of all of those days, one of the themes of Rosh Chodesh and Pesach and Shavuot and Sukkot, Shmini Yatzeret, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, they're all the same in this respect. Every single one of them has the theme of, has the theme of, of sin and of repentance. The Rachum Vachanun, are the two first words of the Yudimu Midot. So we're always asking God to forgive us on the, on, on the prayers of the festivals. I prayed to teach a course later this year on festival and Shabbat prayer. We say on, on the festivals. Return to us. And the introduction to the Musaf, the Nechata Enu, our sins. The exception is, is uh, Shabbos. On Shabbos, we don't have that. But every single festival has an aspect of, of sin and of forgiveness. Every festival's sacrificial order had a series in where we chatot, had a sin offering, except for Shabbos. Shabbos has no sin offering. So Rachum Bechanun is the way that we jump into the Slichot on Yom Kippur. At night, we don't have a Yalav because we have no repetition of the Amida. So we say Slichot after Ma'ariv and the Ashkenazim start with a poem, Yalatachu Neinu Me'erev, Yavo Shavotainu, Yalav Yavo. Because it's part of Yom Kippur. That's what Yom Kippur is about. It's about forgiveness, it's about atonement. So that's, Musaf is different. Because after the Avoda, first of all, the Ashkenazim don't say Yalav Yavo on, uh, on, uh, uh, in, in Musaf. But the point, I want to make this is a very important point about Yom Kippur, maybe the most important point. And that is that first question is what is the relationship between the Avoda and say Slichot? Is the, what is the connection between them? So before we get to the Avoda, I want to make a point about the connection between Avoda and Slichot. The story that lies behind Yom Kippur the story, the biblical story, our prayers have stories that lie behind them. And the story that lies behind Yom Kippur is the story of the golden calf, the ego. That's the story we keep recalling over and over again. After the golden calf, we, we want to re reconnect to God. We want to reconcile. Moshe is our, our representative. Moshe is arguing with God, pleading with God. And God finally agrees to give the people a second chance. And God teaches Moshe 
the attributes to how to say the attributes of God's mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Kelachim, Bechalon, chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, Shemot, Periklam, and Dawid. That's the sort of the culmination of the story of the golden calf. So the golden calf story is what lies behind Yom Kippur. Now, the point of the golden calf story, and this is the critical point, the point of the golden calf story is first Moshe prays on the mountain. God wants to destroy all the people, make Moshe the nation. Moshe rejects that, and God agrees. Then Moshe comes down the mountain. So when he comes down that mountain, we already know, chapter 32, we know that God will not destroy the people. That's for sure. But when Moshe comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets. Tablets are the work of God. The tablets will be the, the central piece within this Mishkan that they're building, within the temple, they, the sanctuary they will build. When Moshe breaks the tablets, there will be no sanctuary because the tablets can't be built by the human being. The tablets are the work of God. We can build everything else, but Salah and his whole crew and the men and the women, but they can't replace the tablets. The only way to build the Mishkan is if God agrees to give Moshe a second set of tablets. And God is in no mood to do that. So Moshe has to pray and pray. When God says, I will walk amongst you, God reveals God's attributes to Moshe. And Moshe bows down and prays, Hashem walk amongst us. And God agrees. God gives Moshe a second set of tablets. Come up the mountain, second set of tablets. You can build the Mishkan, you can build the temple. That's how the book of Exodus ends. So the point of the Avoda, this is what is actually stunning about it, is that on Yom Kippur, because according to our tradition, the second set of what tablets were given on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day in our tradition, not just of forgiveness, but of receiving the Torah, the real Torah that lasts, not the beautiful Torah that Moshe breaks. Because that's a that's illusory Torah. That's not for because we're not there. The real Torah is the second tablets. The second tablets are given to the broken people and the people who are repenting. That's the Torah that lasts forever. So the point of the Avodah then is we actually reenact what it would be to be in that temple. We're reenacting it. And then afterwards, at the very end of the Avodah, there's a little word, there's a whole bunch of paragraphs there that mostly are not recited in most synagogues. The key word is the word Aval, but. After we describe the beauty of the temple, Mare Kohen, how beautiful the, the high priest walks out of the Holy of Holies and, and finishes the work, and his face is radiant, and we're rejoicing in this, and there's forgiveness, and the whole world is redeemed. And then after all of that, Avol, but, Avol, Avonot, Avotelo, Hecharivum, Nabet, that the sins of our ancestors destroyed the, the house. And our own sins have prolonged that. So we have, it's not rebuilt in our time, we say, because of our own sins. So now we're going to pray. Now we're going to try to reconnect. The temple is the symbol of our real connection to God. Sacrificial service is the symbol of our connection to God. But the point is, after the Avodah, after the Avodah, then we suddenly realize, okay, but now we don't have a temple. We recognize the disparity between the imagined temple that we are in 
and the reality of the temple that is not there. And that leads directly into the slichot. And it's actually very interesting, and Goldschmidt makes this point, that typically when we say slichot, on Yom Kippur, during the Aserity Mechuva, before Rosh Hashanah, for those who recite the slichot service, we all remember that before we get to the recitation of God's attributes of mercy, Hashem Hashem Kerachum B'chanun, is always a paragraph that introduces it. We have two different paragraphs that introduce it. Sometimes the paragraph starts with Kel Erech You are a long-suffering or patient God. Short paragraph. That's one paragraph. And the typical paragraph that we recite over and over again is Kel Melech Yoshev Al The King who sits on the throne, throne of, of, uh, of, of mercy. That's always the introduction to Yudimu Midot, right? Chanoti, right? Kel Melch Yeshev Akisei Rachamim, right? Ma'avir Rishon Rishon, etc. Kel Horeito Lanu Lamashol, you taught us to say these 13 attributes. Zicholanu Hayom Brit, remember the covenant of the 13 attributes, that they're efficacious. As you taught the Anav, the meek one, Moses, you taught Moshe. Moshe is the hero of, 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 of Yom Kippur. As you taught Moshe, as it says, right? God calls out in God's name. Those paragraphs introduce the slichot. In Musaf, though, there's no introduction to the slichot. That introduction doesn't exist in Musaf. In Musaf, you move straight from the avoda into but it doesn't exist anymore. And for those that say slichot, you jump right into, in, into the whole slichot service. And the reason for that, I think, is, and the idea of the avoda is that actually we imagine ourselves inside the temple. Don't need any introductions. We're, we're actually in the temple. We are reenacting it. It's as if we're actually there. And then suddenly, it's not there. And suddenly, there is the power of the avoda. The idea is that in telling the story, the story is so powerful that we actually see ourselves there. And I'll give you a, a uh, and with this, I will jump into the Avoda. But let me give you what I think is an interesting uh, parallel to what I just described in terms of the Avoda. And it's a narrative in the book of Breshit. Actually, one that I hope we'll be studying together after the holidays on Sunday mornings, the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph. So Joseph puts the brothers through all kinds of difficult situations. He puts money in their sacks. He accuses them. Then he takes, he says, Benjamin, this youngest one, will stay with me as a slave. You rest, you can go home. Just prior to that, Yosef had asked the brothers, how's that, that old father of yours? Is he still alive? Yes, yes, our father is still alive. And then, okay, fine. Then a little afterwards, he takes Benjamin captive. Brothers are there the whole time. And then Yehuda steps forward. You remember Yehuda says to Joseph, you can't take Benjamin as a slave because if you take him as a slave, his soul is bound up with his father. And if you take him, he, one of them or both will die. Not clear. Both one, it's like one soul. He will die. I know you don't want to kill the old guy, but he'll die if Benjamin... Therefore, take me instead. I, I, I took responsibility. I guaranteed his return. 
to take me. Because how can I go back to my father? Lest I see the lest I see the evil that shall befall him. And Joseph can't contain himself when he hears this, that Judah is offered himself instead of Benjamin. And Joseph screams, everybody should leave. And Joseph said, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And of course, the question is obvious. He just asked them a little while ago if the father's alive, and they haven't left his presence. So of course he's alive. What kind of question is it? Just earlier he said, how is that old man? Is he still alive? Yes, he's alive. So what is he saying? He knows he's alive. But I think the answer is actually very simple. The power of the story. After he describes this connection between Rachel's child and, and Jacob, it's so powerful. Says, Joseph says, talking probably about himself, is he really alive? Could he survive my loss? That's the power of the story. It puts you into a place and suddenly you're there and every, nothing else matters. It's the story which actually influences you, the, the way you think. And the point of the avoda is, and the point of the reenactment is, whatever you think of sacrifices, makes absolutely no difference actually. Because you're in that temple. That's the point of the reenactment. We only have two reenactments in terms of liturgy. In all the liturgy, as far as I can tell, there are only two times in the whole service of the year that we reenact something. One is the Avodah, and the other is Hoshana Rabbah, or the Hoshanas. We actually walk around the synagogue as if we're in that temple. We're walking around the, the way they walked, or we're experiencing the synagogue, or wherever we are, as a kind of temple. We see ourselves as there. And that's the power of the Avodah. So after the Avodah, we don't need introduction to the Slichot. We suddenly we are back in, in our world, and the disparity between the temple in which we were in 10 minutes ago, we were in the temple, and now there is no temple. That leads automatically to the Slichot service. So the avoda is absolutely essential because, of course, the story of the golden calf, as I explained, is that there will not be a temple. I'm not going to go with you, says God. You can, you can get the land. You can, I'll send my angel. You capture the land, milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. Namely, no mishkan, no temple, no, no, no God fully present. And that's what Moshe is praying for. That's Hashem, Hashem, Kerachum, B'chanum. Let us, build, let us build the temple. We need the, the tablets to build the temple. So the avoda and the Selichot are inextricably bound together. Okay, let me stop here for a minute. And um, if there are any comments or questions, I'll take it. This is so basic, by the way. And to me, it's absolutely obvious. But to my amazement, for some people, it's not obvious, but that's the way this, that's the way it's, it's set up in this way, actually. Avoda and then Slichot, then Vidu at the end. But that's the core, that's the central prayer of Musaf of, of Yom Kippur. All the other stuff, which is very beautiful, the Piyutim, the Sanatokev, they're very powerful. But they're not the heart of the service. The heart of the service is the Avoda, Slichot, and of course the Vidu. 
Okay, let me stop and take any comments or questions, then we'll jump right into the Avoda. If there are any comments or questions. Uh, so far, there are none in the chat. Uh, if anyone would like to ask a question, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. If there, if there are none, I'll just continue. That's totally fine. Okay, so we continue. Please feel free to speak up whenever you wish to. Um, okay, so let's, if not, let's just jump into the Avoda. So the Avoda actually is the Torah reading for Yom Kippur. It's not, it's not like Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, the Torah readings, we have to figure out what the connection is between the reading of Reishi chapters 21 and 22 and in Rosh Hashanah. It requires work to figure it out. But on Yom Kippur, it doesn't require any work because the Torah reading in the morning is chapter 16 of, of Ayikra, which is a description of the service of the Kohen Gadol uh, on Yom Kippur. That's what chapter 16 is all about. And um, it's also, of course, in the, uh, in the, in this, in the, in the Musaf, it's in the davening. It's how the chazan starts. After the chazan requests permission to pray in the middle of the Amidah, and then Avoda. So it's obviously front and center on Yom Kippur, clearly. So let's just take a look at chapter 16. Let's begin with chapter 16. And then um, I'll make a, hopefully make a few points about, about the Avoda. Um, and I hope this will be helpful for Yom, for Yom Kippur. Uh, that's really the goal here, is to help us with the uh, Yom Kippur davening, which, which has a million different pieces to it. The way the Avodah of Yom Kippur begins uh, in the Torah, which is chapter 16, is this. So the first verse is already a problem. It says, God spoke to Moshe after the death of Aaron's two sons. Who drew near to God and died. So the first question is the obvious question. This is chapter 16, verse number one. The death of Aaron's sons is recorded in chapter 10. So in between chapter 10 and 16, we have chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And suddenly the Chumash jumps back to chapter 10. We would have expected this ver these verses to be present right after the death of Nadav and Abiyah, which is chapter 10. But no, the Torah has waited five chapters, five intermediate chapters, to tell us now a, a new rule that Aaron has to be taught something after the death of Aaron's sons. That's one question. Why do we have the gap between chapters 10 on one hand and chapter 16 on the other? That's question number one. Question number two is the first, the verse says that Aaron's sons died, Nadav and Avil died, they, in their coming close to God and they died. And it really raises the question, which I think is a very central question, the very beginning of this chapter, what is the meaning of Why in fact did they die? Uh, the Torah is clearly linking this avoda to the death of Nadav and Avihu, 
And if you look back at chapter 10, it's interesting that chapter 10 uh, is what takes place after the dedication of the, of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is dedicated uh, on the eighth day. S seven days, Aaron and his sons were segregated from everybody else. And they brought sacrifices those seven days. And they're separated out and they're wearing the priestly vestments during those seven days. They're not officiating as priests. Moshe actually officiates as priests. On the eighth day, Aaron and his sons are summoned on the eighth day. And there's a whole sacrificial order, which is found in chapter uh, nine of the book of Ayikla. It involves the, they themselves bringing sacrifices. Um, and it involves the people bringing sacrifices. It's very similar to the sacrifices that are brought in chapter 16 on, uh, on uh, Yom Kippur. So this is the eighth day ceremony. And the key figure in chapter nine by Yom Ashmini is actually Aaron. By Yom El Aaron, the command is given to Aaron. The one who's central in the dedication of the Mishkan is none other than, than, than Aaron. Aaron is to bring his own sacrifices in chapter nine, verse number two, his sin offering and his burnt offering. And the people are to bring a sin offering and a burnt offering and two offerings, peace offering, shlamim, and also a cereal offering, a mincha. For today, God will appear to you. And that's what happens in chapter nine. There's a whole description in chapter nine of the service, which is Bayom Hashmini on the eighth day, the dedication, um, the dedication of the um, of, of the temple, consecration of the temple, I would say. And in chapter 10, it says, after God has accepted the sacrifices and Moshe and Aaron bless the people, it's a kind of Bikat Kohanim. And then in chapter 10, for reasons unknown, took their own censers, they put a fire in his side, they brought a ketoret, incense, and they and they sacrificed to God with a, with a strange fire, Esh Zarah, which God had not commanded them. And a fire came down from God and devoured them, consumed them, and they died before God. That's what's described. So the question now is how to understand what they did wrong. One way, one path to go is that they brought up, a, that the mistake was the way they they brought the sacrifice. They brought an Ace Zarah. They brought a Zar, the word Zar means foreign. The Torah warns that a Zar, a foreigner, a non-Kohen, is not to do service. And on this day, they have the status of a Zar, because they're not Aaron. It was Aaron's, Aaron was to consecrate and dedicate, not, not them. That's one way to understand it. But there's another way to understand it, a different way to understand it. And that's the following: that actually the idea of the dedication of the temple, as Moshe says in chapter nine, do all these things, ki hayom Hashem for today God will appear. So what it's about is 
standing before God, appearing before God. And appearing before God, standing in God's presence, while a great privilege, is also very dangerous. God says, Jacob said, Jacob wrestled with a mysterious person, angel. I have seen God face to face and I live. So the idea of the, the, the encounter with the divine is dangerous. And what can allow the encounter to take place? Under what conditions can we survive the encounter? And there's more than one condition in which we can survive the encounter. What if we have an invitation? If God invites us to stand before God, God is not going to destroy us. If God invites us to come, that's one way. The other way is if we stand before God, but we have some kind of proxy. We have something which, 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 which represents us, but is not us. That's what we call a sacrifice or carbon. The word carbon is related to the word karov to come close. The carbon makes it possible to survive the divine encounter. It's true, for example, the Paschal sacrifice. You put the blood on the doorpost and God will pass through Egypt that night and God will accept the sacrifice in your stead. And the problem with Nadav and Avil was that they appeared before God, but they had no protective sacrifice because what they brought, the incense they brought was not one that God desired. So they're coming, as it were, standing naked before God without the protective sacrifice. And the fire then comes down, which represents God's presence. But instead of consuming the sacrifice, it consumes them. So we think of it that way. Now we come back to our Avoda in chapter 16. God spoke to Moshe uh, after the death of Aaron's sons. Who, who died when they drew near to God. Because the coming into God's presence, this intimate connection with this power is actually dangerous. Is actually, could, kills us. We, we, can't, we can't stand in God's presence, except if we have either an invitation or something which can represent us and God will accept that in our stead. And that's what happens over here. God said to Moshe in the second verse of chapter 16, And then Torah goes on. Tell Aaron, at no time should Aaron enter the Kodesh. Here the Kodesh seems to mean perhaps the inner part of the temple, but the inner, inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, was called elsewhere the Kodesh Kodashim. Aaron should not ever go there. He's not allowed in there, and in fact, it's dangerous. There's a real danger in entering that place. However, this is the way Aaron can enter. With this, may Aaron enter the Holies, of Holies, the Kodesh, if he brings the following sacrifices. A burnt offering and a sin offering. He wears special garments in verse number four, only on Yom Kippur, the special garments of Yom Kippur. And from the people from Israel, he takes two goats and a burnt offering in verse number five. 
Under these conditions, Aaron is permitted to encounter God in the most intimate way. That's how the Avodah begins. The Vilna Gaon famously commented, and others have picked this up, that when you read the Chumash at this point, because the Chumash doesn't mention Yom Kippur at this point, Yom Kippur is mentioned at the end of the chapter. Very end of the chapter mentions Yom Kippur, that once a year, uh, Aaron is to, is, to, is to do precisely this. So the Gaon said that what the Chumash, what Aaron, what the Torah says is that as far as Aaron is concerned, um, he can do this anytime he wants. That is to say that if there's a need to do this, and what kind of need would there be? Milgram in his epic work on Vayikra, goes up a 2000 page work, picks up on this. He, he likes this idea, he takes it a, his own way. But fundamentally he talks about national calamity, national disaster, some kind of spiritual disaster. And under those conditions, the high priest, Aaron, would determine that we need a kind of communal repentance and he would enter into God's presence in the attempt to purge the temple of all its impurities, to sanctify the temple or to rededicate the temple. It wasn't limited to Yom Kippur, but the end of the chapter actually makes the point that if maybe for, for one other than Aaron, or maybe the Chumash is saying this is the general rule, but in, but in practice, once a year, our own is to do precisely this, to enter the temple with his own sacrifices, with the communal sacrifices, and under those conditions, he is permitted to, and in fact, the way it seems to read at the end, commanded to do precisely this. So this is chapter 16. This is the this is the description of the what Aaron does on Yom Kippur. Now, let me just digress for a minute. These aren't really digressions. But let me just make a very important point about the Avodah. The Avodah that we have in our, in, our, in our prayer books. And the Avodah we have in our prayer books is based on the Mishnah. In fact, the early, 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 the most early Avodah we have seems to be a translation of the Mishnah. Translation of the Mishnah. First seven chapters of Yoma. Now, the first seven chapters of Yoma, the Mishnah on Tractate Yoma, among other things, in describing the Avoda of Yom Kippur, is trying to figure out the following, which is this that actually, we call the Avoda actually, often it's called Seder Avoda, the order of the service, because the Avoda has a Seder. The, the meal of pa Passover night we call a Seder. It's known as the Seder. And it's called the Seder, presumably. There too, there's a very specific order to how we do things. But one should never forget that in the Torah, the key piece of what we call the Seder is actually the Paschal sacrifices, the Karban Pesach. Okay, we don't have a Karban Pesach today. We have a Seder minus one. At the end of it, we say, Lashana Babi Rushalayim. Chasal Sidur Pesach, we say at the very end, right? We had a Seder with, with, with the main pieces missing. So, maybe next year we'll have a Seder with the key ingredient of the Seder, which is the Paschal sacrifice. So, the Seder, in general, sacrifices have a Seder. And the reason sacrifices have a Seder, and I have two points to make about the Seder of Seder Avoda, 
One is that Dafka, because we're talking about standing in God's presence, entering God's house. And when you enter into God's house, there are all kinds of rules. The closer you get to God, the more careful we have to be about how we behave. So when you get to God's house or God's palace, there are all kinds of rules about those who are inside the palace, what they can wear, all kinds of protocols. Palaces have protocols. God's palace has a protocol. Human palaces have protocols, all kinds of rules. You have to adhere to the rules. In building the Mishkan, the byword in the end of the book of Exodus, Kashet Siva Hashem et Moshe. You have to be very, very careful about it. That's, that's one point about a Seder. But on Yom Kippur, there's an additional point, which I want to emphasize. And the Mishnah wrestles with this, and our Avoda is, trying to, is, is presenting the following. It doesn't present it as a problem, but there's an issue the Mishnah is trying to resolve, and the Avoda is presenting one way to resolve it, which is that chapter 16 of Vayikra, which describes the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur, is only one piece of the puzzle because, in, because there's two other things we have to take into account. Number one, that in the Chumash, in the book of Bamidbar, there's a sacrificial service for Yom Kippur, which seems to be completely separate from chapter 16. It's called the Musaf. On various days in the year, we have special sacrifices. Musaf, we have a Musaf on Shabbos. Why have a Musaf on Shabbos? Because on Shabbat, there's an additional sacrifice on top of the daily sacrifice. So Yom Kippur has, in Book of Bamidbar, a list of sacrifices that were brought in Yom Kippur, which seem to be completely separate from chapter 16. And the question is, how do you merge these two? What is the proper order? And on top of that, there's something else, which is that apart from the Musaf, the additional sacrificial service, and in addition to chapter 16, we have something else, which is the, the service that took place in the temple every single day. The bringing of the morning sacrifice, the Tamid Shol Shachar, the afternoon sacrifice, the lighting of the candles, the cleaning of the menorah, the bringing of the incense in the morning and the afternoon, the special sacrifice of the high priest called the Chavitin, Minchad Chavitin. How does one arrange all of these things? And beyond that, how much of this is done by the high priest? And how much is done by any priest? So this is what the first seven chapters of Yoma, among other things, are trying to figure out what in fact is the Seder. And what's interesting is that if you look at the Avoda, the Ashkenazic Avoda, Amizkoach, and you look at the Avoda of the Eidot Mizrach, they disagree about several points about how this, how, how this Seder works. So the Avoda that we have is a description by a medieval Ashkenazi Jew. His understanding based on his, his, his study, his teachers, etc., the interpretation they gave to, to the tractate Yoma in terms of the Seder. So that's what the mission is trying to work out. What in fact is the Seder? What is the Seder? And now we come to something else about the Seder that is very interesting. Whereas on Rosh Hashanah, as we all know, the key prayers of Rosh Hashanah 
are, are verses from the Bible, the Psukim, three from the Torah, three from the prophetic writings, three from the Psalms, a tenth from the Torah, 30 Psukim in the Malchiot Zichonot Shofron, 10, 10, and 10, at least 10, 10, and 10. And on Yom Kippur, the key prayer, the Avoda, is not Psukim from the Chumash. We read the Torah, that's the Torah reading, but the Avoda is based not on the Torah reading. It's based on the Mishnah. And the Mishnah constructs the Avoda in its own way. It's interesting where the Mishnah seems to diverge from what it says in the Chumash. Let me give you one example of this. And I'll come to one or two other issues in terms of the Avoda. And I would encourage everybody to, before Yom Kippur, to look at the Avoda, to, to read about it. It's, it's, uh, it is one of the hallmarks of the service. The Mishnah posits the following. The Mishnah presumes the following. The Mishnah presumes that the Kohen Gadol, let's, let's put it this way, the Kohen Gadol performs almost everything. There's a couple of questions about stuff that precedes certain other things that are done daily, whether the high priest does them or a different Kohen does them. And there's a difference between the Ashkenazic description and the Sephardic description and the big discussion among the commentaries on the Talmud. But leaving that aside, fundamentally, the Kohen Gadol is doing pretty much everything. That is the daily service, that is the Musaf, and that is the special service of, of Yom Kippur. So now the question is, what is the Seder? What is the order? The presumption of the Mishnah and the text of the Avodah, all the Avodah texts reflect the same thing. The presumption of the Avodah is that, and the Mishnah, is that there are five steps on Yom Kippur, five stages on Yom Kippur. And that depending which step you're in, the Kohen Gadol wears different clothing. The Kohen Gadol, generally speaking, has eight big day kahuna. His uniform is eight big day kahuna. He has eight, eight, eight garments. Some of them contain gold. So they're known in, the, in the, the jargon, they're known in our tradition as big day zahav, the golden garments. They're not mostly gold, but they have some gold woven into them. So they're known in the tradition as big day zahav. But on Yom Kippur, in chapter 16, it says that Aaron shall wear, in chapter 16, verse number three, ketonet bad kodesh yubash, umichase bad yuabasaro, uviyavnet bad yachkar, uvimitznefet bad yitznof. So first of all, when the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur does his service, he wears not eight garments, but four. Four is the number that a regular priest wears, four garments, but they're, of a, they're, they're made of something different. They're not the big day Zahav. They're linen garments known in the tradition as big day Lavan, the white garments, the white garments. So maybe that's the minig why in Yom Kippur we wear a kittel. So the, the people that wear a kittel, the white kittel, the chazan wears a white kittel because the chazan is on Yom Kippur, the, the high priest or act standing in for the high priest. In any event, his big days of the eight garments that he wears all the time and the four garments, Yom Kippur. The assumption of the Mishnah, of course, is that the Kohen Gadol wears the four garments for things that are specific to Yom Kippur in chapter 16. 
But for the other service the Kohen Gadol does on Yom Kippur, he wears the regular eight garments. So for example, the Musaf, he wears his eight garments. The daily sacrifice, he wears his regular garments. If he does the menorah and uh, the regular incense offering of every day, etc., regular garments. So how does this work? So there are five, according to the mission, there are five stages. One, two, three, four, five. In stage number one, I'm not going to get to the down to the nitty gritty of this because there's some disagreement of what exactly he does when. But let's say that the daily service, which starts round one, in round one, he wears his regular eight garments, eight, eight normal garments that the high priest wears. Okay, now we get to round two. Round two is when basically all the all the main things of chapter 16 take place. That is to say, one of the main things. So the main things are, it's said that he has to bring his own sacrifice, his sin offering, and a, and a, and a burnt offering. He takes from the people two goats, and they also have a, a burnt offering. So it works like this. So first of all, that, so, and, and the Torah will say later, that he will bring the sacrificial blood of his own sin offering and the sacrificial blood of one of the two goats of the people, that blood will be brought into the Holy of Holies. And that blood will be sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. And that blood will be sprinkled in the next chamber called the Heichal. And the blood will be sprinkled according to the Mishnah, how they interpret the Torah, on the inner altar, there's two altars in the temple. There's an altar outside where the sacrifices typically are brought. Then there's the incense altar. And he will sprinkle the blood of both of these sacrifices in those three places. That's how the Mishnah understands it. Uh, and I want to get into the details of it because I don't really believe that's the Pshat in the Chomish, but it doesn't matter. That's what the Mishnah says. That's the Gemara. And those are the three places. That's the blood of these two sacrifices. And then after he's done all of that, he goes and he will take the other goat. There were two goats that the people bring. Earlier, before he slaughtered his own sacrifice, he has, and this is unique to Yom Kippur, he places lots, he draws lots. The two goats, according to the Mishnah, are identical. Identical in every way, as close as possible. And he draws the lots, one lot says to God, Rashem. One says, what is Lazozel? To the desert, to the, how one understands Azazel, to be sent out to the desert. And after he brought the sacrifices, the blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled, etc. Then he will send, place the lot upon the goats. And ultimately, uh, after the sacrifice of the, and the it, blood is brought to the Holy of Holies, and afterwards, the goat that is destined to be sent away is sent out into the desert. According to the mission, it dies in the desert. They throw it down a cliff. Torah seems to be sent it away, but that goat is bearing the sins of all of Israel. That's called the Soir Razazel, scapegoat. That's, that's unique to Yom Kippur. The other thing that's unique to Yom Kippur, unique. So there's the sprinkling of the blood of the two sacrifices in the Holy of Holies and in the inner chamber and the inner altar. There's a scapegoat. And then prior to anything, prior to entering with the blood of his own sacrifice first, and then the blood of the 
people's sin offering. Before that, he takes coals and a censer and incense from the outer altar, and he enters into the Holy of Holies and he burns the incense and the inner chamber is filled with, with the incense, with the smoke of the incense, the cloud of the incense. And then he leaves and then he comes back again with his sacrifices. So the bringing of the incense in the Holy of Holies is unique to Yom Kippur, only happens on Yom Kippur. The bringing of the two sacrifices, his own personal sacrifice and the people's sacrifice and the blood sprinkled in those places unique to Yom Kippur, scapegoat is unique to Yom Kippur. So the drawing of the lot, the lottery, placing the lot on the animals. Someone else takes the goat away, but those are unique to Yom Kippur and those are done in round number two. Round number three goes back to, the, to what he usually does. The Musaf, according to some, or pieces of the Musaf are brought in round number three. The burning of certain parts of the animal is round number three. Then he's wearing his regular eight garments. Now we come to round number four. What happens in round number four? The Mishnah has five. Mishnah claims this is a, an ancient tradition. It'd be given to Moses at Sinai. What happens in round number four? This is most interesting. In round number four, because he's done everything already, basically. So what is round four? So the Mishnah makes the amazing claim. Gemara goes with it, of course. That in round number four, when, when, when Aaron or the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to fill it with the incense, the ketoret, he had to carry, he has, he has a, a, a ladle, which has the incense, and he has a censer, a pan, which has the coals. He has to carry them both in. It's not so simple to carry all that in. It's easy, not easy. So in any event, he brought the incense, then he walked out, walks out sort of backwards, walks out of the Holy of Holies. So where's the censer and the, and the radio are still inside the Holy of Holies. So according to the Mishnah, remarkably, in round number four, he puts back on his white garments. He walks back into the Holy of Holies to remove the censer and the radio. And he walks out. That's what he does in round four. In round five, he completes the service of the day. Maybe the, the incense, which is brought daily, the candles, perhaps according to some, the last sacrifice of the day, the tamid of the afternoon. Those are the five rounds. And each of these five rounds, he, he, uh, he bathes inside a, 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 a mikvah and he consecrates his hands before and after. So there are 15 dippings in, in water in one form or another. There were five rounds, and that's the service of the Kohen Gadol, and he goes back and forth between the daily garments and the eight garments and the four garments of, of, Yom, of, of Yom Kippur. Now, what is clear is that there is a distinction, the difference between how the Torah seems to present the story, uh, what he does, and the rabbinic construction of what he does. That's extremely interesting. And one thing that always interested me, I found it quite incredible, is why the Mishnah insists that in round number four, the high priest re-enters the Holy of Holies simply to take out the censer and the ladle. 
and they see this as part of an integral part of the service. And I find it incredible, given the description of entering the Holy of Holies the first time, only this way shall we enter the Holy of Holies with this sacrifice and that sacrifice and the concern about the meticulous observance. And then after that's done, he just walks in to take out the censer and to take out the ladle. What is that actually about? I think that's always interested me about the round number four, which in the Chumash, there is no round number four. You read the Chumash, there's nothing about the ladle, it says nothing about the censer. You know, what happens? I don't know. Maybe a custodian takes it out. Who knows what happens? But the rabbinic instruction is very, very interesting. So I have something to say about that. Um, but before I do, let me just, if there are any comments or questions, I'll take them now and then we'll have to conclude this piece of the, uh, this brief description of the Avoda. Um, does anybody have any comments or questions now? Yes, Chaya, any, anything? Nothing in the chat. Um, Nothing, okay. All right. Um, you know, it's interesting that the, um, the people that have written a lot about the, about the service of the, of, the, of the priest, service in the temple. There's a description of it as service of silence. That's how it's described. There wasn't much speaking in the temple. It says nothing about Aaron or anybody else ever saying anything. So I think it's appropriate that since we're studying the Avodah, uh, everybody in the Shia is very silent because it's, we're talking about the service of silence. Um, that was a joke, but anyway, but uh, in any event, uh, let me make one other point about the uh, 15 minutes. Let me just say something else about the service, about the Avodah. What struck me in, in rereading chapter 16 is that the first verse speaks about, speak to Aaron after the death of his two sons, who, who died when they drew near. And what struck me in reading chapter 16 is that the word to draw near appears several times in the chapter. Of course, the word can mean to draw near. It can also mean to uh, sacrifice. What struck me, I find that I'm sure this can't be a coincidence, is that when chapter 16 uses the word it never seems to mean sacrifice. For example, in chapter 16, verse number six, normally you would read it to mean Aaron shall sacrifice his sin offering to atone for himself and for his household. But what's striking is that after the Torah in verses six and seven and eight, and then, and then in verse number nine, again, you would say Aaron should sacrifice the goat upon which the lot fell to say it's God, what the Holy of Holies, and make it a, a sin offering. But then you read on and you come to verse number 11. Once again, he should, does it mean sacrifice? Then it says, he slaughters the sacrifice. So it's strange. The first thing we, it's, it's, it's telling you what's going to happen in the future, but it doesn't sound like a sacrifice in verse six. 
because he brings the sacrifice in verse number 11. And even in verse 11, they creave Aaron, he should bring it near the shachat, and then it describes it. And the same thing is true of the of the of what it said about the um the goat, because the goat, the slaughtering of the goat, that's only found in verse number 15. So it strikes me that in this chapter, actually, I don't ever believe the word vikriv means to sacrifice. So it's not clear it means ever to sacrifice. Those are the words chapter 16 uses. And it strikes me that beneath all this, there is the idea of chapter 16, that what chapter 16 is actually about is standing in God's presence. As we say about Yom Kippur, Lufnei Hashem Titaru, you shall be purified before God. Lufnei Hashem Titaru. Lechaper Awechem Lufnei Hashem. That the very appearance before God is actually what is atoning. But the question is how to put ourselves in a space where we can actually stand in God's presence, God being a terrifying presence, God being dangerous. You know, when the, when the high priest walked out the first time from the Holy of Holies, says the Mishnah, he would have a prayer. He would say a prayer because he walked into the Holy of Holies and now he walks out and he is uh, he's still alive. He survived the encounter. And when the high priest finished his whole service, the people rejoiced. He went into the most dangerous space and he emerged safe and safely. So the point is that the avoda, among other things, it's about how can we find a way to stand in God's presence? And it's about the danger. And it's about the drama. Every, every service of Yom Kippur has its own feel to it. And the, the, the Musab of Yom Kippur, I would say, is the great drama. It's the drama of Yom Kippur. The danger, the drama, the nervousness, the excitement. Everybody's rooting for this one person who, as the poet describes it in the, in the Avodah we have, and all the Avodahs are that way, but ours in particular, it starts with the creation of the world. That's how the Avodah begins. And it, 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 it describes the various sins that take place, Adam's sin and the, the flood and the building of the Tower of Babel. The world is destroyed, the world is recreated. And then it comes down to Abraham, one person who sees, understands God, wants to teach the world about God. And there's Isaac and there's Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one is Levi. You chose Levi to serve you. And within the tribe of Levi, the priests are singled out. The Kohanim are singled out. And with all the Kohanim, one person is the high priest who will enter alone into the Holy of Holies. And not just, and, and he, he is to confess the sins he confesses, which is only found once in chapter 16, but the Mishnah has three confessions. On, the, on his own animal, he confesses twice. He confesses himself and his family. He confesses himself, his family, and the priests. And then on the, on the scapegoat, he confesses the sins of all of Israel. But the poet who, des who describes the service begins not just with Israel. It's the world. It's the universe. Everything hangs in the balance. It's all depending on one person. 
who enters alone into the Holy of Holies. That's the great drama of the Avodah. And it's interesting that before we start Musaf, there's a Kaddish. There's a Kaddish before all of the prayers of Yom Kippur. And actually, last night, believe it or not, Noah comes over me and says, you know something? What Kaddish do you say before Mincha Yom Kippur? I said to him, you know, it's bothered me for my whole life because I don't know. There must be a special Kaddish for Mincha Yom Kippur. And I have no idea what it is. He says, well, I do know what it is. And I'm going to, last night he sends it to me. The Kaddish for Mincha Yom Kippur. It's unknown for most of them. So, got it from Sherwood Goffin. There's a Nusach for the Kaddish of Mincha Yom Kippur, which I never knew. But all the others I know, and they're all different. And the Kaddish before Musaf is a great drama. We're all familiar with that Kaddish. It's a dramatic moment because Musaf is about the drama. It's about how can we find ourselves in God's presence, standing before God, and the reenactment of that we're in that temple. We see ourselves, if for a fleeting moment, actually standing before God. We are in some sense, not in reality, but in some sense we, we are watching the high priest or anticipating the high priest, at least, entering the Holy of Holies. And when he comes out safely, we rejoice. And that's the reenactment. It's unusual. The two reenactments we have, by the way, and the only two reenactments I can think of in our entire liturgy, one is Yom Kippur and one is the Hoshana, Hoshana Rabbah. And what they have in common is the temple. We, in both cases, both on Yom Kippur, which is what makes it possible to rebuild the temple, Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'chanu, we see ourselves as, imagining ourselves as in that temple, and Hoshana Rabbah Sukkot, which is the holiday all about the temple, we actually see ourselves as walking through the temple, as rejoicing in the temple. Those are the two reenactments that we have. So the idea of Yom Kippur with Nei Hashem Tutaru, to, to, to be purified before God, God's presence is a purifying presence. The question is, how do you get there in the first place? And the Mishnah details the whole process of getting being able to stand in God's presence, beginning with seven days before Yom Kippur. That's how the first mission of Yoma, they separate the high priest for seven days to prepare him for Yom Kippur, to teach him about Yom Kippur, to teach him about the service, to make sure he doesn't become impure. And that's the high priest then it represents, I think, us, basically, our preparation for the day. And we're thinking about how we can stand in God's presence. And then, of course, we recognize after the Avodah that we're not there. There is no temple. And we blame ourselves to some extent. Our sins have prolonged it. That leads right to Slicho. Hashem Hashem Kerachum B'chalun. The disjunction between what we imagine could be and where in fact we are. That's the jump from the Avodah to the, to the Slicho service. So that's the that's the place of the avoda within the Yom Kippur service. That's, that's what the high priest is doing in standing, in standing before God. And that's the, so the structure of the avoda that is, it begins with a long uh, introduction, which is common to many PU team, beginning with creation and the various failures. And then we have this priest who walks in alone to the Holy of Holies. I will just conclude with the following observation about Yom Kippur. Um, 
the two great pieces of Yom Kippur. One, of course, is the Avoda. And there, the emphasis, the high priest enters alone. Not only is he walking alone, the Torah said, no one's even allowed to be in the second chamber when he walks in. He has to walk in in complete solitude. That's the Avoda. When it comes to the Slichot service, Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun, we all remember that after the golden calf, God threatens to destroy the people. Moshe prays. And then God said to Moshe, after all the prayers and the people's repentance, God says to Moshe, tomorrow morning, bright and early, come up, come up tomorrow morning. And Moshe confronts God completely and totally alone. The Torah is given to Moshe, not with all the fanfare that accompanies the first giving of the Torah with the, with the shofar and with the, with the lightning and the thunder and the, all the noise. No, the Torah was given in silence the second time. That's the Torah that actually lasts. Not, not the stuff with the fanfare. Stuff that at last is given in silence. And it's one person, one Moshe Rabbeinu, one person who argues with God, who pleads with God, who convinces God, give us another chance. At the end of the day, Yom Kippur, you stand before God alone. You walk in this world alone. As much as we love community, we love communal prayer, we have all kinds of connections. But in a very profound way, everybody walks alone in this world. And that's what Yom Kippur is. The two key prayers of Yom Kippur. I would say the Vidui as well. Vidui is said in, in relative silence. We don't, we don't tell other people about our mistakes. We, we speak to God about our mistakes. Yes, we ask forgiveness from other people. But it's between me and God. Ashrei Kasui Pesha, the Gemara comments. Kasui Pesha means midrashically, who doesn't, doesn't publicize the failings. So Yom Kippur, both Aaron the high priest enters alone, and the great hero of Yom Kippur was Moshe. He was alone. Came down that mountain, there was nobody. His own brother made the golden calf, and his pupil Joshua, who loves him, doesn't really hear what Moses hears. He hears the cries of war in the camp. No, it's not cries of war. His own pupil doesn't really fully understand the Rebbe. So Yom Kippur is a day both the Slichot service and the Avoda are about standing alone before God. And in standing alone before God, in each of those two cases, the one who stands alone before God is able to bring blessing to the entire community. Both Aaron, the high priest, who brings salvation to Israel, perhaps the world, and Moshe, of course, in the story of the golden calf who is able to allow Israel to move forward, to reconnect to God, and to build that temple after the first tablets have been broken to get a second chance. Yom Kippur is a day of hope, actually, opportunity and hope and reconciliation. It's an amazing gift, Yom Kippur. So anyway, I wish all of you a Gemara Chatima Tova. I did, before Chayes says a couple of words, I did want to mention that um, we put out six podcasts, largely music coming from the Hasidic world, instrumental music, three more podcasts connecting to the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, and the last three, the prayers of Yom Kippur, get a chance to listen to them. Some of those nigunim are quite beautiful, coming from the Hasidic world. Uh, so it's out there, and uh, hope you'll take advantage of that. Once again, Gemara Chatima Tovah. Chai will tell us, tell you something about the upcoming programs. 
I actually looks like we have a question. Do we have time for a question or should we? Yeah, go, of course. Go ahead. What's the question? Uh, uh, we have a raised hand. Um, Lashley, do you want to go ahead? Unmute. Uh, I, yes. Um, you said there was a discrepancy uh, in the order in which uh, we do the avoider and uh, what is described in Ochomish. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that? Right. I mean, when you read the Chumash, the, the Chumash when you read the Chumash, okay, you would not necessarily, uh, I can't get into the specific, have to, we'd have to look at it in some detail, but the Chumash doesn't know of these five rounds, that's for, for certain. I focused on, there's one, there's one piece of it that seems to be in a different order, that is true. And then there's this whole business of this fourth, uh, round number four, which is, putting back on the garments of Yom Kippur just to take out the kaf and mach, to take out the censer. That is completely absent from the text. Then there's a couple of other pieces where the Mishnah seems to have a slightly different order from, from the Chumash. I didn't get into the specific stuff. I'd have to look at it carefully. It would take a fair amount of time. But my larger point was that, the main point I was making was that on Yom Kippur, the core text of the Avodah is actually the Mishnah, which is very striking because on Rosh Hashanah, it's actually the Tanakh. God's word. Yom Kippur is not about God's word. Yom Kippur is about us. It's about our interpretation. Uh, let, me, I, I, let me say one more. One more. Um, let me let me say one. Let me say one. Uh, one more thing about Yom Kippur being our interpretation. Now this will have to stop. But let me say the following. And then I have a couple of announcements. The key prayer of Yom Kippur, if you had to pick out one key prayer of Yom Kippur, I would say Hashem Hashem Kerachum Luchanu. That's repeated over and over again. Uh, in the really traditional uh, services, it's repeated every single prayer of Yom Kippur several times. What's interesting is Hashem Hashem Kerachum Luchanu is what God taught Moshe in the book of Shemot after the golden calf. But after the sin of the Meraglim, there too God threatens to destroy the people, there too Moshe prays. And there, Moshe doesn't just repeat Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bechanun. He changes it. He leaves out things. Hashem, Erech Apayim. He starts with Erech Apayim. He leaves out Emet. So basically, Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bechanun, which is God says, this is what you should say when you're in trouble. But Moshe takes the liberty to, to, to change it, to modify it. And that is because Moshe understands that when Hashem says, say X, Hashem, Hashem, that every situation in life is different. We can't always simply just say those words because the situation is a different situation. The first time, the, the golden calf, we're just out of Egypt. The people are afraid because Moshe has not come down. The people want some kind of something that represents God. That's one thing. But the sin of the Miragui that we recall on Tishabov, then the people say, we don't want to go to the land. We want to go back to Egypt. Forget the land. What is Moshe going to say? Let them go to the land? They don't want to go. So therefore, it requires a different approach. It's using the Yudgimumidot in a different kind of way. Not Rachel Mechanu, which is about reconciliation. That's not about reconciliation. It's about staying, staying punishment. Not every case in life can be reconciled with somebody else. Sometimes the best we can do is say, listen, you have your life, I have my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm not gonna do anything against you. You go your path, I'm going my path. 
often we have to do that. That's different. The idea that you can always fully reconcile with everybody, certainly not my experience, and I don't believe it's true. So that's Moshe, Hashem Erech HaPayim. Stay the punishment. Figure out a way to, to let them move forward. That's different. So Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim Buchanan is the best example of what I would call Torah Shabbal Peh, about reinterpretation. And that's what the mission is. The mission is taking the Torah and interpreting it a certain way and taking certain liberties with the text and trying to figure out how it speaks to us. How can we take this Torah, which is God's word, and understand it as speaking to every generation? That's what the mission is doing. That's what the Medrash is doing. I think that's what the Torah is about. And that requires people with great sensitivity and knowledge to uh, be able to do that. As opposed to simply saying, read what it says, say what it says, because that doesn't work, obviously. Because we're not the same people that lived uh, 3,000 years ago, or frankly, the same people that lived 50 years ago. So therefore, we always need to be able to figure out how the Torah continues to speak to us. That's what Yom Kippur, I think, in the deepest sense is actually about. Thank you. I'll stop, I'll stop over here then. Okay, Chaya, you want a couple of announcements and we'll... Oh, wait, sorry. It looks like that's... Um, okay. Sorry. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silver, and thank you to everyone who joined us. Um, we have another lecture today at 1 p.m., which is um, called... Sorry. It's with Ms. Rachel Sharansky-Danzinger, and it's the 2022 Stanley Rudolph Memorial Lecture. Um, and it's going to be about the role of relationships between parents and children in our high holiday readings. So that's really exciting. Um, like Rabbi Silver uh, mentioned, we have the really exciting literature project, which we'd love for you to check out. Um, and you're welcome to go to lo.drisha.org to see about all of our other offerings. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And Kumar Khatimatabah.